If you will now turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And once you find it, stand in honor of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd help us to continue in our setting forth and viewing and exaltation of Christ from the Scriptures. We need your Spirit to make sense of the Scriptures, and we know that you love to do that, and so we ask that you do that which, which you love, which is to teach us of yourself Holy Spirit, we know that you love to exalt Christ, and so we ask that you would do that which you love, so that we might know Him, might love the Lord Jesus even more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In these verses, our Lord has clearly changed the old Passover meal into something new, namely the Lord's Supper. And I told you last week that under the economy, and I showed you some examples, under the economy of the Old Covenant, the, there were these seasons of revival or reformation that seemed to uh, climax in the restoration of the observance of the Passover meal. And since that time, revivals of religion have also included a renewed interest in an observance of the Lord's Supper, and even the, the many issues that surround it, like the proper mode of observing the Lord's Supper, the proper subjects of the Lord's Supper, the proper elements of the Lord's Supper, and the, the proper spiritual nature of the Lord's Supper. All of that seems to rise to the surface in times of Reformation and revival. And so what we're trying to do is look at these verses and obviously understanding, understand them in their original setting and context, but also consider them with an eye towards a renewed understanding or a, a growing understanding and appreciation for the Lord's Supper. Because, as I said last week, a renewed understanding of the Lord's Supper should be the cause and the effect of a renewed or greater appreciation for the gospel itself. The Lord's Supper shows us a picture of what Christ has done. And so the, the more that we understand the supper, the more we should understand the gospel. And the more that we understand the gospel, we should even more so appreciate the supper. So last week I showed you that all of divine revelation is sort of drawn up here in these four verses. We see Christ, the God-man, unfolding the scroll of redemptive history, uh, connecting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and showing the eternal purpose of God, which pivots around that redemptive work of Christ, offering Himself as a substitute for sinners. And that is something that we have to keep in mind. When we come to the Lord's table, we are remembering that all of redemptive history pivots on this work of Christ, making atonement for sinners. Well, today we're going to look at the second doctrine that I drew out two weeks ago, and that is this. In these verses, the Lord Jesus has stated in no uncertain terms the purpose of His death. Jesus here states very clearly, unambiguously, the purpose of His death. That is the reason why He died. Now, a few words about this concept of purpose. Purpose 
is synonymous with intention or plan. It's synonymous with having an objective or an aim or a goal in mind. Now when we consider the attributes of God, God's purpose, God's intention is synonymous with what theologians tend to call His hidden will or in biblical language, His good pleasure, His counsel, His eternal decree. They're all synonymous with the purpose of God. And so if God purposes or intends to do something or to have something done or to achieve a goal, He decreed the same from all eternity according to the most wise and holy counsel of His will. And if God has a purpose in the death of Christ, then that purpose precedes chronologically and logically the accomplishing of that purpose because His purposes are eternal. And if God has a purpose in the death of Christ, that purpose and that purpose alone will certainly find its accomplishment in time. For no purpose of God's can be thwarted. So, Jesus here states in no uncertain terms the purpose of His death. I told you a couple weeks ago it would be an interesting study to sort of comb the Gospels and see if you could find other statements where Jesus himself, himself clearly sets forth the purpose of His death, specifically. I'm going to give you a few. Some of these are more specific than others. In Matthew 20, 28, and its synoptic parallel in Mark 11, 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life, that's a re reference to His death, as a ransom for many. In John 6 and verse 51, Jesus says, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There He's talking about giving of His flesh, that's His death. The purpose, the life of the world. John 10 and verse 11 here is two verses from John chapter 10. It has more to do with the object in view of his death. But he says, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. The objects in view in Christ's death are the sheep. In John 10, 17, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That's purpose. Why are you laying down your life? So that I may take it up again. Now in, in all of those, we can draw out a couple things. First, hopefully you notice in those references, they all carry some theological baggage, some assumptions that have to be clarified, I believe, with a greater purpose. And, and secondly, if these are intentions that Christ sets forth, we ask, did He succeed? We know that His death, the giving of His life, happened at a moment in time. It was a moment in time event. It happened on a date that we could write on a calendar. Did he succeed in that death in accomplishing the purposes that he states? In his death, did he ransom anybody? Did he win eternal life for the believing ones? I didn't read that reference, John 3.15. He says the Son of Man, referring to His being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man must be lifted up, that's a reference to His crucifixion, that whoever believes may have eternal life. Did He actually win eternal life for anybody when He died? Did He secure life for the world? He says that's why He was dying. Did He, did he do it? Did He do anything of any real actual benefit for the sheep? Did he take up his life? He said, the reason I lay it down is to take it up. Did he accomplish these purposes in his death? Now, hopefully we would all say, yes and amen. Absolutely, he accomplished those things. Now, we go back to that notion of the theological baggage and we begin to fill out this a little more. Did he ransom anyone? We say, yes. The question is, ransom from what? A ransom is a payment price. Ransomed... From what? There's a, some assumptions in that language. Did he secure eternal life for anyone? We say yes. Well, eternal life as opposed to what? Theological assumptions have to be made or brought in. What was accomplished for the sheep in the death of the shepherd? We have to bring that in from elsewhere. 
Why is it important that Christ take His life up again? There's an assumption there that that's somehow beneficial to God's eternal purpose. What I'm trying to get at is all of those intentions are subordinate to another greater all-encompassing purpose that I'm going to show you today from this text. Because in this text, Jesus states in no uncertain terms the purpose of His death. Now as we move into the exposition, some of this is going to be a little repetitive because we've already looked at it a couple times. But I do want to make sure that every doctrine that I set forth is clearly shown from the words and the phrases of the text. So today we're going to focus primarily on verses 27 and 28 and the verses that deal with the cup. The first week we talked about the bread, the cup, and the promise. Now we're sort of zeroing in on that cup. So notice first the substance in question. The substance in question. Verse 27, Matthew writes, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. So notice, he took a cup. Luke twenty-two twenty 20 says, Likewise, the cup after supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. As we have seen, the cup after supper. The cup, the cup, the cup. A cup is used as a synecdoche for what's inside the cup. You don't drink the cup. When you get finished drinking, the cup's still there. The cup represents something else. The question is, what's in the cup? The point is not to find the Holy Grail. There's nothing special about the Holy Grail. It's what's inside the cup that matters. So what's inside this cup? Well, he tells us. We know historically, but he even tells us, Matthew 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. Mark 14, 25, the fruit of the vine. Luke 22, 18, the fruit of the vine. What grows on vines? Grapes. Well, again, you know, you don't drink grapes. You would choke. You drink the juice from the grapes. Now, some of you already get nervous. I can tell. This is a clear reference to wine. So the substance in question here is wine, more than likely diluted with water, historically, traditionally drank from four separate cups in concert with the four promises from Exodus chapter 6. Notice, secondly, the symbol in mind. The symbol in mind. Remember that a symbol or a sign points to something else. The, the illustration I always use, you don't pull off the interstate under the blue sign that says food, McDonald's, Wendy's, Cracker Barrel, and wait for a waitress to come to your table. You use the sign to get to the, the thing, the object. Here we have symbolism. He says, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. That's the symbol. That word this is what's called a demonstrative pronoun, which means that's like Christ slapping a sticker on the side of an object. When you see that, when you see the word, this use of the word this, you can picture Christ taking his finger and touching an object. He's, he's talking about something very specific. This is my blood. And I told you two weeks ago that he's obviously, clearly speaking, figuratively, not literally because his physical blood still flowed in his veins, but he's speaking symbolically. But the fact that it's symbolic doesn't reduce it in significance, it raises it in significance. What he's saying is this wine that you're now drinking is meant to represent the blood coursing through my veins. Now, biblically speaking, the idea of blood carries with it a greater significance than just DNA that manifests itself in red liquid. There's more to the blood than just the physical concept of blood. Genesis 9.4 says, You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Leviticus 17 verse 11, The life of the flesh is in 
the blood. So blood is representative of physical, biological life in a creature. Most often the concept of spilling that blood, the blood coming out of the creature. And so he's saying this wine that you're drinking right now, it's meant to represent the blood coursing through my veins that is providing for me physical, biological life, which is the blood, he says, of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. And that word covenant is a genitive, which means it tells us what kind of blood we're talking about. What kind of blood is this, Lord? It is the covenant kind of blood. The kind of blood that is related in some way to a covenant. So we are taken back to Exodus 24.8 where Moses says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Remember the sequence. And this is important. God gives the law. Moses writes the law. Moses reads from the law. The people agree to obey the law. Moses throws the blood. And he says, Behold the blood of the covenant. The blood thrown on the people followed their agreeing to the terms of the covenant. Bloodshed represents the ratification or the inauguration of the covenant. It was the seal of the covenant transaction. In our language, we would say, signed on the dotted line. If you've ever bought a house, the moment of truth is signing your name on that last piece of paper. When you've done that, it's done. You're ready to move in. That's the idea. So bloodshed means that the covenant has now been set forth in all of its fullness, in all of the terms. The terms have been agreed upon by both parties. The legal threatenings have been shown in the shedding of this blood. Remember, the animal dies, the blood comes out. The picture is, whoever breaks the covenant, this should happen to them. They should die. The blood seals it. And so from this point on... All of the terms of the covenant are binding on the parties involved. When you see the blood of the covenant, the covenant is now in full force. Now one special kind of covenant is what we would call a last will and testament. Wherein the covenanting party makes an agreement and the covenant becomes binding not at the death of an animal, but at the death of the person who wrote the will. As soon as that person dies, the will comes into effect. All wills and testaments that we might make, those are covenants. Not all covenants are a last will and testament, but that's one kind of a covenant. That's going to come in later. So when the Lord says, this is my blood of the covenant, He's saying, this wine in this cup represents my life's blood, that when poured out is going to ratify or signify the ratification or the inauguration of the covenant. It's the covenant kind of blood. Now we might object or question and say, I thought the covenant was already ratified. Did not Moses throw blood on the people? Well, this is where Luke helps us out and gives us one word that Matthew's audience more than likely would have been able to infer. Luke says in Luke 22:20, 20, he records it this way, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant. So, here's the symbolism. When Christ says, this is my blood of the covenant, he's saying, this wine represents my life's blood that when poured out is going to signify the ratification of the new covenant. Christ's blood was the signing on the dotted line of the new covenant. That's the symbol. Notice thirdly, the satisfaction in view. The satisfaction in view. Now that reference from Luke to the new covenant brings about questions, right? If this is the new covenant, what's new about it? If this is the new covenant, or where's the old covenant? And we don't have time to go into all of the details of the old covenant, but it is, it is 
uh, hinted at at the end of verse 28. Notice how he elaborates. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Which, referring to the blood. Which blood, the blood of Jesus, represented by this wine and this cup, which blood is presently, as, is, as if it's already done, is poured out. And remember, the blood doesn't come out in a peaceful, quiet death. The blood doesn't come out whenever an old person dies in their sleep. When the blood comes out, we're talking about a violent death in which the skin and the, the veins of a body are ripped open and their blood is dumped out. Which blood is poured out for many? And that word for means for the sake of or concerning many. So this bloodshed and this covenant have benefits that are going to apply to a large number of people, just as many. Which blood? My blood, the Lord Jesus says. My blood, which is going to be and, and, and so surely poured out that it's as if it's already happened, is going to be poured out in a violent death concerning many. And here we have the word for again. It's not the same word for as the, the previous use. This word is a preposition of purpose. Here's the purpose of my pouring out my blood to this end for the forgiveness of sins. That's pardon. That's, you remember when we talked about the forgiveness. The picture is the lifting off of the guilt and the liability that is incurred because of sins committed. That's forgiveness. Which blood is going to be violently poured out on account of many to the end that sins would be pardoned. So we ask, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. John says sin is lawlessness. Well, what's the law of God? It's the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. In Hebrews 9 and verse 4, the tablets containing the Ten Commandments are called the tablets of the covenant. In Exodus 24, those connected laws that were read or given right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, they were written in what God or what Moses calls the book of the covenant. So we have the tablets of covenant, the book of the covenant, now the blood of the covenant thrown on the people, all signifying the old covenant. So sins or transgressing of the law, that's synonymous with breaking the old covenant. So what is he saying? He's saying my blood is to be poured out on account of many to the end that sins committed under the old covenant would be pardoned and the wages of those sins would be done away with. The liability to judgment would be taken away. Or as Hebrews 9.15 says, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death that signs the dotted line on the new covenant. So everything taking place at this table, and here particularly the cup and its symbolism is being conducted in the shadow of the violent death that our Lord is about to suffer. But He lets His disciples know very clearly that in that death, the new covenant is going to be ratified for the sake of an innumerable host of people who stood condemned under the old covenant so that the curse of their sins would be lifted off of them and dealt with. That's the answer to the question, for what purpose did Christ die? And as grand as that is, that's just a summary drawn from this passage. Jesus has stated in no uncertain terms the purpose of His death. Now there's a lot of debate that surrounds the extent of the atonement. Summarized in the question, for whom did Christ die? If you own a copy of the Bible and you've ever leafed through it at all, 
you've probably discovered it does not contain a list of names. Rather, it sets forth the purpose of Christ's death and the achievements of Christ's death from the, the pen of inspired authors. And from that, we can make some deductions. But the Bible never tries to answer that question because that's not the right question. The question is not, for whom did Christ die? Why? Because that takes the work of Christ on the cross and makes it solely about man. And the Bible is not a book about man. The question is not, for whom did Christ die? The question is, for what purpose did Christ die? That takes man off the pedestal and puts God where he's supposed to be, the purposer in the death of Christ. Now we know from Christ's own words, that He came to do the Father's will, that as He went to the cross, He was being obedient to the Father, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that as He hung on the cross, He was only doing that which His Father had sent Him to do. And so the question is, for what purpose, from the perspective of God, did Christ come and die? The question is not about the extent of the atonement. The question is about intent. So we got some options. Was it God's intention in the death of Christ to make salvation possible for every individual? Or was it God's intention to make salvation actual for some individuals? For what purpose? From the perspective of God, did Christ die? Remember that God's perspective is pre-temporal and extra-temporal. That means whatever purpose God has in the death of Christ, it precedes time and creation, and it stands overarching outside of time and creation. Remember that God is independent. That means no purpose of His is ever dependent on any action of man. Of man. It is eternal, therefore it cannot be contingent on anything in time. God's purpose in the death of Christ is not contingent on whether or not we accept His purpose, whether or not we preach His purpose, whether or not we respond or feel like His purpose is an acceptable purpose because it's God's purpose. And here Jesus has stated in no uncertain terms the purpose of His death, namely to ratify the new covenant which includes the forgiveness of sins committed under the old covenant. Here, the whole Bible comes together once again. Old and new. And again we ask, did he succeed? In his death... Did Jesus bring the new covenant into full force with all of its promises and all, for all of the parties involved? Did Jesus accomplish the purpose of God from eternity stated clearly in verse 28? The blood of the covenant. I would remind you of what Job says. Job 42 and verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's not possible for God to have a purpose in the death of Christ that goes unachieved, that goes unaccomplished. God will not say in glory, well, I tried. The answer we would give to the question, did he succeed, is again a resounding yes. In his death, Christ brought into full force the new covenant. When that man hung on that cross outside of that city on that hill, it was a signal raised for the nations that said, Behold the blood of the covenant. A death has occurred that redeems from transgressions. The legal demands that once stood against you have been nailed to the cross. God has come down. God has entered into treaty with man. Behold the daysman. Behold the mediator. Here he is. He's mediating the covenant. That's what was happening on the cross. He was ratifying the new covenant. So, we saw last Lord's Day evening several aspects of the biblical covenants. 
A covenant is a free, a work of free condescension where God enters into an agreement with man. It's in a covenant, the biblical covenants, the relationship between God and men is developed beyond what is there simply by nature. And in the biblical covenants, there is a promise set forth of a better state of life than is currently had when the terms are met. Christ has clearly set forth the purpose of His death. His death was to ratify the new covenant. No purpose of His can be thwarted. Christ did, in fact, ratify the new covenant. So then we have to ask, what are the promises consigned to the new covenant which develop the relationship between God and men beyond purely natural limitations? What are they? What is the state of existence that is proffered to men in the new covenant upon the satisfaction of the terms. To summarize all of that, what is the new covenant? He died. Here's the purpose. He died to ratify the new covenant. We ask, what is the new covenant? So now I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, we have what is considered the classic passage of God's promise of the coming new covenant a passage which is also quoted in the New Testament to refer to the New Covenant. And I want to read them for you, and in the time that remains, I just want to point out the promises of the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. We have here four promises that are connected to the new covenant that are, of course, developed more fully in, in the New Testament by the inspired authors, promises guaranteed by the new covenant or in the new covenant. Number one, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The law again here is a reference to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. The moral law of God is a delineation of the very character of of God Himself. Christ summarized this moral law with a full and complete whole man love for God and love for neighbor as yourself. That's the law. Remember in the Old Covenant, the law was etched on tablets of stone. Purely external. Purely ineffectual. But in the New Covenant, God says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to put it within them. And the heart, in biblical language, is the center of your personal existence from which flows all of the issues of life. Everything that you are flows from your heart. God says, I'm going to put my law within them and write it on their hearts. The, the Apostle Paul, speaking of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, and notice, written to Corinthians, not Jews, Corinthians, Gentile believers. He says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. 
Old covenant written on stone. New covenant. The law is written on hearts. And instead of ink or instead of engravement in that stone, now it is the Spirit of God that is given to the heart which etches on the heart of a person the moral perfections of God Himself. The love for God and love for neighbor is written in an internal, effectual way so that the person, their issues of life, now proceed from a heart that has engraved on it the very moral nature of God. It is now governed, that person is now governed in or by God's law. We call that heart change. The giving of the Spirit is also addressed in another passage that deals with the promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What rules? What statutes? He's talking about the moral law of God. I'm going to give my spirit in you, write that law on your new heart of flesh, and I, that, that writing is going to cause you to live in such a way that is conformed to the statutes and the rules of God. The Spirit of God is given as an effectual agent, not ink, the Spirit, to bring about that conformity. Now we could ask there at that point again, does He accomplish what He purposes to do? Jesus references that giving of the Spirit in John 3, 5 when He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the new birth, a regeneration. Regeneration signifies the coming of the Spirit, the writing of the law on the new heart of flesh. It's regeneration. Moses, when he restates the law and the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy... He gives them the Ten Commandments and the people agree to obey the Ten Commandments and then God says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God says, I wish that they had hearts to obey that would never waver. Why does He wish that? Because He knows that merely giving the law is impotent to produce a, a, a consistent obedience. It can't do it. And that's why later on in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we read, The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's another promise of the new covenant. I wish that you had it, and by the way, I'm going to do it in your heart. God promises blessings, God promises curses, and then He makes that promise of the new covenant. In the old covenant, membership was gained by circumcision, circumcision of the flesh. Again, external, ineffectual. But in the New Testament, there comes this, or this, this new covenant, there comes this circumcision of the heart, not baptism of the body. Circumcision of the heart in the new covenant. Paul says in Colossians 2, 11, another book, not written to primarily Jewish converts, but to Gentiles. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Again, all of that takes place at regeneration. The new covenant promises regeneration with all with whom it is made. It promises regeneration. Secondly, second promise of the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now several weeks ago in the, the introduction I showed how that's what we might call a whole Bible promise. It starts at the beginning, goes all the way to the end and culminates in Revelation 21. All of the redeemed in glory are recipients of this promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. A.W. Pink calls this mutual acquiescence. That enmity 
which once stood between God and sinners is ended in the new covenant. God takes us to be His. Delightfully, gladly, willingly puts His arm around us and says, These are mine. And we take God delightfully, willingly, gladly, and we say, This is our God. We call this reconciliation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. In Christ, in the putting forth of this person, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Because He counts them against Christ at the cross. And we ask, did He accomplish His purpose at the cross? Christ takes the trespasses, bears them in His own body on the tree, takes them into the grave, and the enmity now between God and man is extinguished. And then He ascends into the heavens and He gives His Holy Spirit and He changes our hearts so that we come to God and the enmity between man and God is extinguished and we are mutually acquiescing in one another. It's amazing that rebels and haters of God would ever take this God. And it's even more amazing that this holy God would ever take these rebel sinners. But in the new covenant, sealed in Christ's blood, reconciliation between God and man is made for everyone with whom the covenant was made. Third promise. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. All with whom the new covenant was made will know God. Now as fallen men, we know that we are alienated from God, hostile to God. Our foolish hearts are darkened. We're darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within us. While we might very well know of God from creation, we don't truly know Him. By nature. Even the demons know of God. We're not talking about knowledge of God. He says, they shall all know me. And so in salvation, this is what we read in 2 Corinthians 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's real, internal knowledge of God. And just like at creation, God speaks it. And it comes. He gives the knowledge. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that new creation knows God in Christ. Amen. Jesus says in John 6.45, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They will be taught by God, about God and about sin and about Christ. They're going to be given a spiritual understanding about spiritual things. And what's going to happen once they get that knowledge? They will come to Christ. In John 6, that's synonymous with saving faith in Christ. And this knowledge is given by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 2.20, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Verse 27 of that same chapter, the anointing you have received from Him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. The Spirit comes and gives the knowledge of God. Now, go back to that text that I referenced in 2 Corinthians 3 where there Paul is actually comparing the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and Moses and Christ in, in short form. But he says... Referring to that knowledge that we have of God, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into, this, into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit gives us this true knowledge of God in Christ Jesus, and as we look and as we behold the glory of God in Christ, that actually works effectually to make us more like Christ Himself. We call that sanctification. Made into the image of Christ. So the new covenant guarantees a true knowledge of God, producing or leading to coming to Christ in saving faith, and the progressive work of the Holy Spirit as we behold God in Christ 
to everyone with whom it is made. And the fourth promise, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins or their sin no more. Now this is what he clearly asserted in our text from Matthew. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Sins are pardoned. The guilt will be lifted off. God says, I will remember them no more. God, because He's omniscient, cannot forget. But He can choose to no longer bring to mind the sins that have been committed against Him when He considers us. So when we read that I will, He says, I will remember their sins no more, He's saying, I will not consider them or think of them according to their sins anymore. Just like Paul says, we, we used to consider Christ according to the flesh. We consider Him according to the flesh no longer. God says, I used to consider them according to their sins, but I consider them according to their sins no longer. So then we ask, if He's not, con if he's not considering us, if He's not viewing us according to our sins, then how is He considering us? How does He see us? When God looks at the members of the new covenant, what does He see? The answer is He considers us based on the righteousness of Christ who is our federal head. He views us in Christ. And speaking of Christ's role as the mediator of the new covenant, we read in Hebrews 10, 14 that by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfection. His death guarantees perfection forever for all for whom He mediated the new covenant. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sins lifted off of us in forgiveness, taken by Christ on the cross, Christ's righteousness imputed to us, perfecting us, before God. We call that justification. God's declaring us righteous on account of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The new covenant guarantees the justification of everybody with whom it is made. Now quickly, let me just rattle off another litany of texts. Hebrews 9.15, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The new covenant secures the effectual calling of God and it guarantees an eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9.26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The new covenant secures the putting away of sin. Hebrews 9.12, He has entered once for all into the holy places not by the means of blood and or not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal inheritance. Redemption, the new covenant, secures eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The new covenant guarantees a purified conscience. Remember, the sacrifices of the law could never perfect the conscience. All they did was remind them every year, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, until Christ comes and He perfects the conscience in His death. One sacrifice for all. Hebrews 10.10, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now there, that word sanctification, I agree with other commentators, is not meant to be taken in the systematic theological sense of the progressive work, but in the, in the usage of the temple and the tabernacle, wherein something is set apart for holy use unto God. We have been set apart as a people for God by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So everyone within this covenant will be sovereignly, effectually called, regenerated, reconciled to God, taught of God by the Spirit of God. They will turn to Christ in true saving faith. Their sins will be put away to be remembered no more. They will behold Christ and thus be gradually sanctified. And they will receive the promised eternal inheritance that has been bequeathed to them in the last will and testament of Christ. 
That's why Hebrews 8 refers to this as a faultless covenant. You can't find fault in it because it does everything that needs to be done. I'll quote Pink again. He says, The Messianic covenant, unlike the Sinaitic covenant, effectually accomplishes the eternal salvation of all who are interested in it. The new covenant guarantees the application of all of the requirements needed for salvation. I'll say this tonight as well. We call this the new covenant or the covenant of grace because Christ's death effectively secures the working grace of God. And in His ascension, He has given authority to send the Holy Spirit to apply that effectual grace. Christ ratifies the new covenant in His death as federal head. There He stood and acted as representative for a group of people. The question is not, for whom did Christ die? The question is, for whom did Christ stand as federal head when He represented the new covenant in His blood? Or when He ratified the new covenant in His blood? Now from God's perspective, again, we can answer John 6, 39, those given to the Son by the Father who will eventually be glorified. Ephesians 1, 4, those chosen in Christ to be holy. Romans 8.30, those who are called, justified, glorified. Romans 8.29, those whom He foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We can answer with all of those terms because all of those are blessings promised in the new covenant. From our perspective, we could say Christ suffered and died for all of those who will receive the eternal redemption. Now how do we know who that is? We don't have a list. How can anyone have assurance if we don't have a list? Some have taken it upon themselves to start a list, you know, in their Bible. A list contains one point, their name. If you're lacking assurance, well, open your Bible and look at that name. There's the list. That's all you need to look at. But that's not what the Bible gives us. The Bible never says, here's how you find assurance. Think back to that time or that prayer. Look in your Bible for that name. The Bible promises fruits of the new covenant and says... Look for the fruits. No fruits, no covenant. Effectually called from death to life, regeneration, repentance, faith, growth in holiness, love for Christ, love for the brethren, perseverance in all of these things until death. These things annexed to the new covenant are guaranteed to come to everyone for whom Christ died because He died to ratify the new covenant. He guarantees full and complete salvation for everyone in the covenant. So how do we apply this? Number one, knowing the purpose of Christ's death, we preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Now, in our history, somewhere along the way, we've departed from this covenantal view of Scripture and of Christ's work. And we thought that it would be helpful to narrow everything down to a few simple truths, a few simple truth claims. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus rose again from the dead. And if you believe those facts, you're saved. Just believe what the demons believe and you're saved. Regardless of any actual change in the heart from which all of the issues of life flow. We've developed this notion that somehow, and think about the irony of this, that somehow it's more honoring to Christ to say that He would take to heaven anyone and everyone who will assent mentally to these truths, but not that He actually can change them in this life. That doesn't honor Christ. The Apostle Paul would make statements like, We preach Christ crucified. Or, I will glory in nothing but the cross of Christ. He wasn't reducing all of the gospel down to two pieces of wood nailed together. He had in that the whole Bible, the whole biblical concept of salvation in covenant form. The ratification of the covenant. Mediation sums up 
all of Christ's work. Christ mediating the new covenant in the place of sinners and securing the work of the Spirit in them. And so we preach Christ in all of His offices, prophet, priest, and king, mediating the covenant. We preach Christ in all of the fullness of an accomplished work. And Christ with powerful and effectual power to change human hearts. That's what it means to preach Christ. And then we command men, come to terms. Repent and believe. Come to Christ in true and saving faith. That's what exalts Christ. Not preaching to man. It doesn't matter what you ever do in your life or whatever happens to you, Christ will welcome you. No, preaching, preaching an exalted Christ preaches a Christ who can actually accomplish their salvation. Preaching an accomplished Savior, an effectual application. That's what it means to preach Christ in all of His fullness and all of His power and all of His offices and all of His glory. Secondly, seeing that Christ has clearly stated the purpose of His death, we can now examine ourselves based on the promises of the new covenant. Again, the question of assurance of salvation is answered when we see what Christ has promised and purposed to secure, and then we compare our lives to that. So here's how you examine yourself. Have you been born again? Born from heaven, born from above. Do you have the law of God written on your heart. You say, well, how do I know that? Do you love the law of God? Do you delight in the law of God? Do you love the first day of the week? How do you feel about the requirements of your employer that are that kind of great against you, but you know that to go against them would be stealing from him? Do you delight in the law of God? Does it govern everything that you're doing? Every, every moral decision, does it automatically filter through the Ten Commandments. That's a delight. A natural love and delight and conformity to the law of God. Do you obey, obey the commands of Christ? Do you love other Christians? Do you love God? Are you reconciled to Him? Not do you believe in Him. Do you love Him? Are you growing in holiness? Not because you want to be moral, but because you've been beholding Christ so consistently and persistently and intently that you can't help but be changed as you look at Him. That's self-examination. Are these things true of me? We don't have a list of names. God does, but we don't. We have promises annexed to a covenant, ratified in a death, vindicated by a resurrection, and a divine, divinely inspired uh, written revelation that says, look at the promises. Are the promises true of you? Biblical assurance of salvation rests in Christ, not a prayer. What did Christ promise He would give? Do I have it? And there's your answer. If you believe that you've obtained a salvation that is not presently, consistently, effectively changing you, you are blaspheming the work of Christ. You're saying, I believe the man died, I believe the man rose from the dead, but I don't believe he has the power to change me. You're blaspheming the, the Father who purposed the application of his death. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit when you say, he's not powerful enough to change me. It, you see the problem. You can't have biblical salvation without having the promises of the new covenant. Because we ask... Did he accomplish what he said he was going to do? Either he did or he didn't. Either he's an accomplished Savior or he's a failure. So examine yourself based on the promises of the new covenant. Let's pray. At the Last Supper, our Lord clearly changed the old Passover into something new. The Lord's Supper, which we do every week. And the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the local church, not the universal church. Jesus did not give the Lord's Supper to a universal 
church. He gave it to the local church in which communicants can come and participate in the symbol that Christ has ordained to commemorate the new covenant. This time of year, there's a lot of talk in churches about drama, and theater, plays. Christ has given us two dramas for His church. One of them is the Lord's Supper, where we portray this thing that Christ has given, and we are reminded of the new covenant. Everything that I just listed from Jeremiah, sealed, guaranteed, promised, and we eat and are reminded. And the contemplation of these things, just like when they are preached, as we examine our hearts and contemplate the death of Christ, that should give us grace. That's the Spirit giving us deeper, better, more clear, more spiritually informed thoughts of what Christ has done and what He's guaranteed for us. The new birth, experiential knowledge of God, reconciliation, growth in holiness, eternal redemption. When we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded eternal redemption has been won. So as the elements are passed, consider these things. May it be a weekly reminder that the covenant has been made. As I often read at the end of the Lord's Supper, that we, when we do these things, we proclaim the Lord's death. We are saying, not only to ourselves, but to the brothers and sisters here, we're saying, look what Christ has won. Look what He did in His death. We're reminding one another of the covenant promises of God. So consider the death of Christ and what He has won for us, and then we'll come to the table together.